Sophie's World by Justine Garner. The myths: a precarious balance between the forces of good and evil. There was no letter for Sophie the next morning. All through the interminable day at school, she was bored stiff. She took care to be extra nice to be Joanna during the breaks. On the way home, they talked about going camping as soon as the woods were dry enough. After what seemed like an eternity, she was once again at the mailbox. First, she opened a letter postmarked in Mexico. It was from her father. He wrote about how much he was longing for home and how much, and how, for the first time, he had managed to beat the chief officer at chess. Apart from that, he had almost finished the pile of books he had brought aboard with him after his winter leave. And then there it was. A brown envelope with her name on it, leaving her school bag and the rest of the mail in her house. Sophie ran to the den. She pulled the new typewritten pages and began to read. The mythological world picture. Hello there, Sophie. We have a lot to do, so we'll get started without delay. By philosophy, we mean the completely new way of thinking that evolved in Greece about six hundred years before the birth of Christ. Until that time, people had found answers to all their questions in various religions. These religious ex- explanations were handed down from generation to generation, in the form of myths. A myth is a story about the gods which sets out to explain why life is as it is. Over the millennia, a wide profusion of mythological explanations of philosophical questions spread across the world. The Greek philosophers attempted to prove that these explanations were not to be trusted. In order to understand how early philosophers thought, we have to understand what it was like to have a mythological picture of the world. We can take some Nordic myths as example. There is no need to carry coals to Newcastle. You have probably heard of Thor and his hammer. Before Christianity came to Norway, people believed that Thor rode across the sky in a chariot drawn by two go- goats. When he swung his hammer, it made thunder and lightning. The word thunder in Norwegian, Thordon, means Thor's roar. In Swedish, the word for thunder is aska. Originally, as aka means which means God's journey over the heavens. When there is lightning and thunder, there is also rain, which was vital to the Viking farmers. So Thor was worshipped as the god of fertility. The mythological explanation for rain was therefore that Thor was swinging his hammer, and when it rained, the corn germinated and thrived in the fields. How the plants of the fields could grow and yield crops was not understood, but it was clearly somehow connected with the rain. And since everybody believed that rain had to do with something to do with Thor, he was one of the most important of the Norse gods. There was another reason why Thor was so, was so important—a reason related to the entire world order. The Vikings believed that the inhabited world was an island under constant threat. From outside dangers, they called this part of the world Midgard, 
which means the kingdom in the middle. Within Midgard lay Asgard, the Roman of the gods. Outside Midgard was the kingdom of Utgard, the domain of the treacherous giants, who resorted to all kinds of coming, cunning tricks to try and destroy the world. Evil monsters like these were often referred to as the forces of chaos. Not only in Norse mythology, but in almost all other cultures, people found there was a precarious balance between the forces of good and evil. One of the ways in which the giants could destroy Midgard was by abducting Freya, the goddess of fertility. If they could do this, nothing would grow in the fields and the women would no longer have children. So it was vital to hold these giants in check. Thor was a central figure in this battle with the giants. His hammer could do more than make rain. It was a key weapon in the struggle against the dangerous forces of chaos. It gave him almost unlimited power. For example, he could hurl at our giants and slay them. And he never had to worry about losing it because it always came back to him, just like a boomerang. This was a mythological explanation for how the balance of nature was maintained and why there was a constant struggle between good and evil. And this was precisely the kind of explanation that the philosophers rejected. But it was not a question of explanations alone. Mortals could not just sit idly by and wait for the gods to intervene while catastrophes such as drought or plague loomed. They had to act for themselves in a struggle against evil. They did this by performing various religious ceremonies or rites. The most significant religious ceremony in Norse times was the offering. Making an offering to a god had the effect of increasing that god's power. For example, the mortals had to make offerings to the gods to give them the strength to conquer the forces of chaos. They could do this by sacrificing an animal to the god. The offering to Thor was usually a goat. Offerings to Odin sometimes took the form of human sacrifices. The myth that is best known in Nordic countries comes from the Eddic poem The Lay of Thrym. It tells how Thor, rising from sleep, finds that his hammer is gone. This makes him so angry that his hands tremble and his beard shakes. Accompanied by his henchman Loki, he goes to Freya to ask if Loki may borrow her wings so he can fly to Jotunheim, the land of the giants, and find out if they are the ones who have stolen Thor's hammer. At Jotunheim, Thor meets Thorn Loki meets Thrym, the king of the giants, who, sure enough, begins to boast that he has hidden the hammer seven leagues under the earth. And he adds that the gods will not get the hammer back unless Thrym is given Freya as his bride. Can you picture it, Sophie? Suddenly, the good gods find themselves in the midst of a full-blown hostage incident. The the giants have seized the gods' most vital defensive weapon. This is an utterly unacceptable situation. As long as the giants have Thor's hammer, they have total control over the world of gods and mortals. 
In exchange for the hammer, they are demanding Freya. But this is equally unacceptable. If the gods have to give up their goddess of fertility, she who protects all life, the grass will disappear from the fields and all gods and mortals will die. The situation is deadlocked. Loki returns to Asgard, as the myth goes, and tells Freya to put on her wedding attire, as she is, alas, to wed the king of the giants. Freya is furious, and says people will think she is absolutely man-crazy if she agrees to marry a giant. Then the god Hemdol has an idea. He suggests that Thor dress up as a bride. With his hair up and two stones in his tunic, he will look like a woman. Understandably, Thor is not wildly enthusiastic about the idea, but he finally accepts that this is the only way he will ever get his hammer back. So Thor allows himself to be attired in bridal costume, with Loki as his bridesmaid. To put it in present-day terms, Thor and Loki are the gods' anti-terrorist squad. Disguised as a woman... Their mission is to breach the giant stronghold and recapture Thor's hammer. When the gods arrive at Jotunheim, the giants began to prepare the wedding feast. But during the feast, the bride, Thor that is, devours an entire ox and ate salmon. He also drinks three barrels of beer. This astonishes Thrym. The true identity of the commandos is nearly revealed. But Loki manages to avert the danger by explaining that Freya has been looking forward to coming to Jonesium so much that she has not eaten for a week. When Thrym lifts the bridal veil to kiss the bride, he is startled to find himself looking into Thor's burning eyes. Once again, Loki saves the situation by explaining that the bride has not slept for a week because she is so excited about the wedding. At this, Thrym commands that the hammer be brought forth and laid in the bride's lap during the wedding ceremony. Thor roars with laughter when he is given the hammer. First, he kills Thrym with it, and then he wipes out the giants and all their kin. And thus, the gruesome hostage affair has a happy ending. Thor, the Batman, or James Bond of the gods, has once again conquered the force of evil. So much for the myth itself, Sophie. But what is the real meaning behind it? It wasn't just made up for entertainment. The myth also tries to explain something. Here is one possible interpretation. When a drought occurred, people sought the explanation why there was no rain. Could it be that the giants had stolen Thor's hammer? Perhaps the myth was an attempt to explain the changing seasons of the year. In the winter, nature dies because Thor's hammer is in Jotunheim. By the spring, he succeeds in winning it back. So the myths tried to give people an explanation for something they could not understand. But a myth was not only an explanation. People also carried out religious ceremonies related to myths. We can imagine how people's response to drought or crop failure would be to enact a drama about the events in the myth. Perhaps a man in the village would dress up as a bride with stone for breasts and in order to steal the hammer back from the giants. 
By doing this, people were taking some action to make it rain so the crops would grow in the field. There are a great many examples from other parts of the world of the way people dramatize their myths of the seasons in order to speed up the processes of nature. So far, we have only taken a brief glimpse into the world of Norse mythology. But there are countless myths about Thor and Odin, Freyr and Freya, Hoder and Balder, and many other gods. Mythological notations of this kind flourished all over the world until philosophers began to tamper with them. A mythological world pictures also existed in Greece when the first philosophy was evolving. The stories of the go- Greek gods had been handed down from generation to generation to generation for centuries. In Greece, the gods were called Zeus and Apollo, Hera and Athena, Dionysus and Asclepius, Hercules and Hephaestus, to mention only a few of them. Around 700 BC, much of this Greek mythology was written down by Homer and Hesiod. This created a whole new situation. Now that the myths existed in written form, it was possible to discuss them. The earliest Greek philosophers criticized Homer's mythology because it caused the gods to resemble mortals too much and were just as egoistic and treacherous. For the first time, it was said the myths were nothing but human notions. One exponent of this view was the philosopher Exophanes, which, who lived around 500-700 BC. Men have created the gods in their own image, he said. They believe the gods were born and have bodies and clothes and language just as we have. Ethiopians believe that the gods are black and flat-nosed. Thracians imagine them to be blue-eyed and fair-haired. If oxen, horses, and lions could draw, they would depict gods that looked like oxen, horses, and lions. In that period, the Greeks founded many city-states, both in Greece itself and in Greek colonies in southern Italy and Asia Minor, where all manual works was done by slaves, leaving the citizens free to devote all their time to politics and culture. In these city environments, people began to think in a completely new way. Purely on his own behalf, any citizen will question the way the society ought to be organized. Individuals could thus also ask philosophical questions without recourse to ancient myths. We call this development from mythological mode of thought to one based on experience and reason. The aim of the early Greek philosophers was to find a natural rather than supernatural explanations for natural processes. Sophie left the den and wandered about in the large garden. She tried to forget what she had learned at school, especially in science classes. If she had grown up in this garden without knowing anything at all about nature, how would she feel about spring? Would she try to invent some kind of explanation for why it suddenly started to rain one day? Would she work out some fantasy to explain where the snow went and why the sun rose in the morning? Yes, she definitely would. She began to make up a story. 
Winter held the land in its icy grip because the evil Muriat had imprisoned the beautiful Princess Sikita in a cold prison. But one morning, the brave Prince Bravato came and rescued her. Sikita was so happy that she began to dance over the meadows, singing a song where so she cannot compose inside the dank prison. The earth and the trees are so moved that all the snow turned into tears. But the sun came out and dried all the tears away. The birds imitated Sikita's song, and when the beautiful princess let down her golden tresses, a few locks of her hair fell onto the earth and turned into the lilies of the field. Sophie liked her beautiful story. If she had not known any other explanation for the changing seasons, she felt sure she would have come to believe her own story in the end. She understood that people had always felt a need to explain the processes of nature. Perhaps they could live without such explanations, and that they had made up all the myths in the time before there was anything called science. <laughs>